Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to lecture three of the Principles of Economics online course. Today's lecture's topic is time. This is the third lecture in the first part of the book and the final lecture in that part of the book. The first part of the book, if you remember, is called Fundamentals and it lays out the fundamental concepts that I believe are important to establish before we get into the individual topics of economics. I believe today's lecture is a pivotal lecture in this course because it lays out the foundation of how I like to think about economics and how I believe it is very fruitful to understand economic concepts that are going to be discussed in the forthcoming 15 chapters and lectures of this book and course. So in the first lecture, we discussed human action, why the Austrian approach to economics focuses on human action. 
In the second lecture, we discussed the concept of value and marginal analysis, which is extremely pivotal. And in this lecture, we discussed the concept of time. Now, for most Austrian economists and most Austrian economics textbooks, this is not exactly one of the foundational initial topics of the course. But I believe, I, I think we can make a more progress and we can explain the foundations of economics better if we situate all of these topics within the context of economizing time. And to do this, I draw on the work of an economist named Julian Simon, who was not exactly an Austrian economist. He would be more closely uh, or better defined as a Chicago school economist. And I think his work on time, in particular, he wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource. I believe that work is enormously valuable for understanding economics because I believe it restates the economic problem as the problem of economizing time, which I believe is a very valid way of approaching it and I believe is a more productive way of approaching it. So Simon argues that time is the ultimate resource. And I believe this is very true. And in this chapter, I'm going to lay out the case for why time is really the ultimate resource and why all economic scarcity flows from the scarcity of time. So to begin with, it's important to understand what we mean by time in the economic concept, as an economic concept. So all of human action happens across time. Any action that humans take will happen across time. And all economic decisions that people take, take place across time. Production requires time. Everything that we do in economic activity has time as an essential component. All economic production processes need time as an input into them in order for them to happen. So... Um, and also, we need to understand that humans are mortal, so our time is scarce. We can't live forever, as far as anybody can tell, and so therefore, time is scarce. So, because of what we discussed in uh, the previous chapter, we know that in order for something to be an economic good, it needs to be scarce. If it offers you utility, and time obviously has utility to us, you'd rather have time than not have time, because if you don't have time, you're dead. So clearly we have utility from time, and as something that gives you utility is, uh, as something that gives you utility is uh, valuable if it is scarce. It, we have to value things that are scarce, and that's why time is valuable, and that's why time is scarce. So that, for me, means that time is an economic good. But time is unique as an economic good, because it is irreversible. There's something different between time and other goods. If you lose a good like an apple, if you have an apple, you lose an apple, you can buy another apple, you can replace it with another apple. But you can't buy back time and you can't increase your time indefinitely. There's a limit on how much time you have. Um, you can live longer, you, the better you take care of your health, the more you stay out of harm's way, the likelier you are to live longer and longer and longer. And then the longer you live, the more time you have. But there is a limit to it. We don't have any records of humans living for longer than 120 years. And it seems that that is an upper bound on how much time anyone can have on this earth. And um, Julian Simon explains that time is the ultimate resource. 
And I think there's a very, very good case to be made for this. And in this chapter and in this lecture, I'm going to make this case because from time, you're able to make all the other resources and also the limit on how much we can make of any particular resource, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of Julian Simon, is how much time we dedicate to it. There are no natural or physical constraints on the production of any physical good. We can always make more of anything. We can make more cars, more houses, more iron, more gold, more oil. There's no limit or constraint on how much we can make of any of those things. The only constraint on how much we can make on the, of them is the constraint of time. If we keep digging on in earth, we keep finding more and more of whatever material we want, whether it's oil or coal or uh, gold or whatever it is. The more we dig, the more we find. The reason we don't have an infinite quantity of those things is not because there isn't enough of them on earth. What exists of them on earth is far beyond our ability to utilize. The reason we can't have enough of them is because it takes time to make these resources usable for us as human beings. It takes time to extract them and produce them. So because of that, I think all economic scarcity is a manifestation and a consequence of the scarcity of human time. It's only because time is scarce that we are suffering from the problem of the scarcity of economic goods. The only reason goods are scarce is because our time to make them is scarce. So the scarcity of our time really is something that becomes obvious when you think about it. You know, we only get one shot at life. People live once and you never know how long that it will last. You're born and you could live for one minute or you could live for 100 years or 120 years. You have no idea at what point in those 120 years you die. It could happen anytime, any moment. Something can happen and you could die. So your time is really unique in this sense that you get one shot at it, one shot at time. It has to remain continuous. Nobody's been brought back from the dead. Well, you know, maybe some possible exceptions of near-death experiences could be argued to be dead. But practically speaking, you get one shot at life. If you die, that's it. That's oh, It's over. So you have one shot at life. It's uninterrupted. You can't get a do-over. It's not a video game where you can just restart the game and get another uh, shot at life. You have one shot and you have no idea how long it'll last. You could die any moment, any day. So as people uh, grow from childhood and infancy to adulthood, they begin to understand this. They begin to understand that there is a thing called death. They begin to understand that their life will not last forever. They begin to realize that time simply runs out and therefore it is scarce and therefore you start to economize it and you start to dedicate it towards the things that provide you the most value. And from that, I think we can see that economizing time is the ultimate economizing act because it is what gives everything else its scarcity. Even if we had an infinite amount of all other goods, your time is scarce and so you can't enjoy all these other goods and you have to prioritize and choose between them. And that means they will inevitably be scarce. So um, physical resources, we see, they continue to get more abundant, but time just gets scarcer. And Julian Simon calls the time the ultimate resource because it can be used to make all economic goods. The term resource is inaccurate for material objects as they are products of applying our time 
the real resource, the only real resource, into transforming infinite materials into useful economic goods. The term resource suggests that these things are just there for us to pick up, that we are in some Garden of Eden where these things just fall into our lap. But that's not accurate. Um, These things aren't just falling into our lap and we're not just consuming them. We're not passive consumers of things that are just given to us from heaven. We need to make all of these economic goods, whatever they are, whatever economic good exists, requires human time to produce and to make. Even picking a fruit from a wild tree that nobody has grown the tree, nobody owns the tree, nobody has harvested or uh, taken care of the tree before, If you wanted to pick the fruit, it still takes time to pick the fruit and um, move it to your mouth and eat it. So the process of consumption requires production beforehand, and that production process requires human time. So the limit on all things is always the amount of human time that we have. It's not accurate to think of resources as things that just exist that we consume. Resources are really products. Even the most raw resource is a product. You don't just get iron ore or uh, copper or any of these resources. They're not just, they don't just manifest magically when you want them. That, that, that's kind of what is implied by the term resource. Even these raw materials, raw minerals, require significant amount of work in order for them to exist in their supposedly raw form. You need to dig an earth and you need to process them heavily in order to produce them in a supposedly raw material. So that's why it's better to think about material goods as being limited, not because of earth being finite. It isn't exactly that earth is finite. Uh, that That's not exactly what makes things limited for us. Because given the size of the earth and given how little we consume, they are practically infinite. That doesn't mean they're not scarce. They are more abundant than our ability to exploit, but they are scarce because we don't have the time to process all of them and to provide us with an infinite quantity of them. So the binding constraint on our ability to consume things is the time we have, not their absolute quantity on earth. That's really the key concept to understand. So yes, it's true that the earth is finite. There's a limited amount of everything on earth. But that amount is so enormously large compared to what we consume that it's completely irrelevant. What matters to us for our economic decision-making is the time we need to spend in order to produce those things. So economic scarcity is a function of the scarcity of human time. And because of the function of economic scarcity and the scarcity of human time, we're able to understand the concept of opportunity cost, which is a very, very important concept in economics. And the concept of opportunity cost refers to the cost of an act in terms of the foregone value of a different act you could have done instead. This is a very important concept. So it's not just the cost of something is not just the direct monetary cost that you have to incur in order to get it. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeedeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. 
Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. It is also what you give up in order to engage in this act. There's always another action that you could have been carrying out in order to take part in something. And that action that you forego is the foregone opportunity cost. So scarcity of time is what gives everything an opportunity cost. Everything needs time. Time is finite, so everything has an opportunity cost. There's always another use of the scarce time that you have that is possible. So to get a sense of this um, idea, you know, I've made a pretty big claim here saying that everything is so abundant that nothing is physically scarce. It's only our time that's scarce. But in order to do that, let's look at some of the data that Julian Simon offers. Um, all matter is highly abundant and the limit of how much we have is purely the time we spend getting it. How can we justify such a statement? Well, Simon presents a very convincing and compelling argument for this. And he wrote his book, The Ultimate Resource, in the 1990s. So he looked at data from 1950 and 1990. It's a 40-year period between those two uh, years. And during those uh 40 year period we see that the reserves of pretty much everything continue to grow people think of the concept of um uh, proven reserves you know we have this much proven reserves of oil or that much proven reserves of zinc they think that that refers to the upper limit or the total amount of that material that exists in the crust of the earth but that's not accurate it refers specifically to the amount that we've discovered that we haven't taken out, but that we know exists in Earth. But the Earth is far bigger than just the things that we've dug for. So you've dug holes and you know that there is this much here and there, but you haven't excavated the entire Earth. You haven't run an entire inventory of the entire planet. Nobody can do such a thing. It is so enormously unthinkably impossibly expensive for anybody to carry out something like that and to be able to do a full inventory of how much metals exist under the crust of the earth so what we refer to as proven reserves which is usually presented as the reason why the earth is limited that you know we have this much proven reserves and we're consuming this much so if we continue to consume at this rate then in 20 years we're not going to have anything left this is how people generally look at the concept of scarcity. They focus on proven reserves and they compare it to annual consumption and then they arrive at the conclusion that we are going to run out of our reserves at a certain period in time, given our rate of consumption. But the proven reserves is not at the magnitude that exists on Earth. In fact, 
if the idea that we are consuming the proven reserves and the proven reserves are everything that we have, if that is true, then that would what would follow is that the proven reserves would decline over time. The more time goes by, the less reserves we have left because we keep consuming from them. But what do we see? We see the exact opposite. And so Julian Simon looks at data from 1950 to 1990, and he compares those two periods. In 1950, the world's population was around 2.5 billion people. In 1990, it was 5.3 billion people. In 1950, global GDP was $9.5 trillion of GDP. In 1990, it was $47 trillion of GDP. So, and, and this is constant adjusting for inflation. So we see, if we expect that the population has grown and economic production has grown, you would expect that we are running down our reserves, that the proven reserves of all of these materials have declined. But instead, what do we find? We find the exact opposite. So if we look at the, if we compare the growth multiples, we see that the population went up by 2.1. We see the GDP went up by five. So a factor of five, so GDP went up five times. But what happened to proven reserves? Not only did the proven reserves not decline, they went up by several multiples. So in 1990, the proven reserves of lead were three times the proven reserves of lead in 1950. So 40 years of consumption of lead, 40 years of growing consumption of lead, every year we consume more lead than we did before. And yet, by 1990, we get to a point where our proven reserves of lead are three times larger than what they were in 1950. And with zinc, it's 4.2. With copper, it's 5.7. With iron, it's 8.3. With oil, it's 13.1. With phosphate, it's 14. And with bauxite, 16.6. So the more we consume, the more proven reserves. This is completely counterintuitive if you think of the world as being a fixed pool of resources that we're drawing upon. But it makes a lot of sense when you understand that the world is not a fixed pool of resources. It's an infinitely larger pool of resources than anything that we can consume. And the more we consume, the more motivation we have to go looking for more reserves and the more reserves we find. And that's why our reserves keep going up rather than down over time. Proven reserves is not a measure of the total metals and earth. It is a measure of what we have discovered without extracting. Proven reserves can be thought of as the tip of the iceberg. There's a giant iceberg, but only the tip of it is visible above the water. So we, what we see from the iceberg is just what is above the water. But the more we, the deeper we go, the bigger the iceberg becomes. And that's, I think, a good metaphor for how resources function. What we know of the proven reserves of any material are a tiny little fraction of everything that's there. And the more we look, the more we find. The deeper we look at the iceberg, the more we find. Earth is enormous. And so a couple of graphics to illustrate this. If um, I, I looked at the total size of mines around the world, the surface area of the earth that is being mined to find resources is similar to the surface area of a medium desk, 122 centimeters by 61 centimeters. If that was, if that desk was the area of all of the world's mines, the surface area of Earth is the size of a football field, which is around 105 meters by 68 meters. So it's enormously larger. 
in terms of its size where all the area that we have consumed all the area that we have dug up everywhere in the world is only but a tiny fraction of the total surface of earth that's where we found all of the resources that we're currently using and that's just the surface area if we were to think about it in terms of the uh, volume of earth earth is a big giant ball and the volume of earth if you were to compare it to the volume of an olympic swimming pool then the volume of everything that we have extracted, all the mines that we have dug everywhere in the world, that is only equivalent to around half a cup of water. So half a cup of water is an indetectable, imperceptible amount of water in a swimming pool, in an Olympic swimming pool. If you had an Olympic swimming pool and you took half a cup of water out of it, it would nobody would notice it's uh it's it, it's what happens between uh, condensation and evaporation probably half a cup of water is going in and out of a swimming pool pretty much every hour or maybe every minute because of the variance in temperature around the pool some of the water evaporates or some of the water condenses and falls back into the pool so it's completely imperceptible effectively everything that we have dug up all of the mines everywhere in the world are a, 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 a tiny little fraction of everything that is on earth so we've had decades of environmental hysteria all about consuming half a cup of a swimming pool of earth the total size of the swimming pool is irrelevant to all practical considerations so if all of humanity is alive today thanks to the resources that exist in half a swimming uh, half a half a cup environmentalists who are worried about uh, resources running out are like people who are worried that we're gonna finish the swimming pool from uh, our activity but everything that we've done eight billion people alive today are subsisting on half a cup of water which is imperceptible in the grand scheme of the swimming pool so the idea that we could just run through the entire swimming pool is completely baseless the, there are far bigger economic constraints and the economic constraints are at the margin for us the economic constraints for us are how much can we consume from this uh, swimming pool uh, based on how much time we have so it's meaningless to worry about the size of the swimming pool because it's so much larger than anything that we can consume what we need to worry about is how much time we have to get through the half cup that we're going through so the cup is where all of our economic activities happen within that cup is every single resource that we consume as human beings and that's what we are economizing that's what we're thinking about that's what we're worried about all the time everything other than that is inconsequential detail um, who cares if it's a swimming pool or two swimming pools we're never going to get anywhere near consuming the entire thing so what matters then is how much time we have to extract the tiny drops that constitute the half cup we drink our economic decisions are made at the margin about the next plot of land to be mined and never pertain to the total aggregate remember economic analysis has carried out at the margin and not in total so a good metaphor here is to think if you're building a house are you worried about the size uh, about how much rocks exist on earth you need rocks to build your house you're building a house out of rocks 
you need rocks to build your house. But the constraint on the size of the house that you can build is not the size of rocks that exist on Earth or whether you're going to run out of rocks. The constraint is how much resources you have, how much money and time you have to be able to mobilize the infinite amount of rocks that exist on Earth and turn them into your house. And so people who worry about Earth running out of resources are like people worrying about the earth running out of rocks before you finish building your house. The limit on how big your house is, is purely about how much resources you can dedicate to building that house. That's why the quantity of proven reserves is always going up. The real price of material goods is always declining. And the real price of human time, human wages, are always rising in real terms. Raw material is plentiful everywhere around us. The economic goods produced from that raw material is, are scarce because the time to produce them is scarce. Now, uh, economists Marianne Tupi and Gail Pooley have produced something called the Simon Abundance Index in honor of Julian Simon. And I hosted uh, uh, Gail Pooley on my podcast. I highly recommend that episode. It was a great discussion with him. And him and I uh, agree on a lot, obviously. So it, was, it wasn't uh, contentious in any way. It was a <laughs> very friendly and um, uh, agreeable chat where we just reiterated both of our points repeatedly. And I think it is an extremely relevant discussion to um, understanding all concepts of economic scarcity. So they've formulated this thing called the Simon Abundance Index. And with this, they measure the price of 50 basic commodities. And they've been tracking these commodities from 1980 until today. And um, when I wrote this book, I had they had the data from 1980 to 2000, which is a nice round 40-year period, which allows us to pass good judgment on it. So measured in terms of their wages, the price of these commodities dropped 75% in 40 years. Now, obviously, the prices of most things go up in nominal terms, but that's because fiat money is broken and it is losing value because it is even becoming more and more abundant than those things. But the price of these commodities in terms of human wages has dropped significantly. In fact, in 40 years, it's dropped around 75%. And during that period, human population increased by 75%. We have 75% more people in 2020 than we did in 1980. And yet, the cost of all of these goods has gone down significantly. That is truly eye-opening, I think. So, and the reason for that is that humans are not leeches on earth. We produce these resources. We don't consume them. We produce them. So if you look at this chart, you see that the change in the price, the time price has changed significantly for these uh, commodities over time. And you measure them compared to wages, you see that pretty much all of them have become enormously more abundant. And so the abundance multiplier is how much you can buy for one hour of work. What has happened to it? So for sugar, it's gone up sevenfold. For hides, it's gone up sevenfold. For coffee, it's about sevenfold. For crude oil, it's around 4.5. For the average for all those goods is about fourfold. So one hour of work today can get you four times as many of these commodities on average as it could back then. In other words, the cost has gone down 75%. The uh, even for gold, it's 1.8 times as much. For zinc, it's 1.7. The lowest we find is iron ore, and that's 1.3. So you still get a 24% decline in the 
cost and that's the lowest one and that's probably only this uh, low because there was some kind of supply problem uh, in 20, 2000 that uh, changed the prices so the only real scarcity because of this i conclude that the only real scarcity is human time resources just become more abundant with time we keep making more of all of those things and we can see that with oil reserves which continuously rise more than consumption this is another great chart to illustrate this point and uh, many people told me that uh, well not many but several people have told me a couple of people have told me that when they first looked at this chart they thought there was a line missing because when you look at it, you only see one line, and that is the total proven reserves. And you see proven reserves between 1980 and 2020 have more than doubled. We've gone from under 700 to over 1,700 billion barrels of oil in 40 years. And that's just the proven reserves. They've gone up enormously. What has happened to consumption during that time? Consumption has also gone up enormously, but if you compare it to reserves, it is imperceptible it's that little line here at the bottom which looks like it is just the x-axis but it isn't consumption has actually gone up significantly over the past 40 years and yet proven reserves have gone up much more so oil is far more abundant today because we consume more so we look more so we find more and so the reserves that we know exist continue to grow and that's why oil continues to become more and more and more abundant now um julian simon became famous because he conducted a bet with an environmentalist uh, named paul ehrlich on this issue so in the 1970s this idea of scarcity was becoming enormously popular and the reason for that of course was that inflation was causing the price of everything to rise and of course governments aren't going to tell you that the reason that the prices are rising are all due to central bank and monetary intervention by the government causing the money supply to rise and causing the prices of things to go up instead universities funded by that money by fiat money will tell you that the reason is some kind of environmental catastrophe that we're running out of all of those things industrialization has gone too far we humanity have raped and pillaged the earth and we've uh, squeezed it dry and it doesn't have any more resources for us and so earth is running out of all the things that we want earth is making our life um, impossible because we have consumed all the things that are valuable on earth and um, paul ehrlich has been uh, banging that drum since the 1960s he's still around he's still banging the same drum of environmental doom and catastrophe and um, i discussed this in more detail in in the fiat standard i highly recommend looking into it i think i make the argument in the fiat standard that modern climate science nutrition science and a lot of environmental sciences are primarily just government cope for inflation it's just providing rationales for why declining standards of living or standards of living that are not rising as much as they could or should be uh, is not a result of inflation but is rather a result of some environmental problem i discussed this in detail in the fiat standard but for now we'll just focus on the concept of uh, the scarcity um, Simon of offered Ehrlich, Ehrlich was saying Ehrlich had written a book with really precise predictions saying by year 1984 we're going to run out of iron by year 1982 we're going to run out of oil 
I don't have the exact numbers on me, but it doesn't even matter. All of these predictions have been obviously completely incorrect. But he predicted that we were going to run out of all of these essential resources that humanity uses all over the world. And uh, Simon told him, look, I'm going to bet you name any time period longer than a year. And uh, we will measure the abundance of those things. We'll measure the prices of those things. And I bet that their price is going to be lower. And so Ehrlich picked 10 years and he picked five different commodities. And they agreed that they would bet a certain sum of money on each one of these goods rising or falling. And um, if the price would rise, then Simon loses the bet because that would imply that these things are becoming more scarce. Whereas if the price would fall, then Ehrlich loses the bet because Simon would be right, because then these things would be becoming would become more abundant. And Ehrlich picked the medals and the time frame, but Simon won the bet on them all. The reason for that is that the geologist thought Earth was a static bucket we are consuming from. He thought the proven reserves that we had at that point in time where everything that we had. And so he would look at how much we're consuming, how much reserves there are, and he would conclude that we'd be able to go through all of those reserves in a few years. And then by the end of the, the, that period, we're just not going to have anything left. But the economist understood that resources are created by humans acting. It is human action that creates resources. It's human actions that finds resources and increases the number of uh, resources available to us and the amount of proven reserves for us. And that's why the more we consume, the more we produce. The more we consume, the more reserves we have. And that's why Simon's bet is a good bet at any time, always. Now, another important concept related to time is the concept of time preference, which we'll be discussing in detail in chapter 13, lecture 13 in this course. And time preference refers to the degree of discounting of the future. Time preference is defined as a universal preference for earlier over later satisfaction. As an individual, as a human being, you always prefer the present over the future because the future is uncertain. You, so humans always prefer a good in the present over a good, the same good in the future. Given the choice between uh, me giving you an apple today or me giving you an apple in a year, you choose the apple today. If given the choice between having a house or a car or a certain sum of money, the identical good today or in a year, everybody basically chooses today. And the reason for that is that we understand that we might not be around in a year. In a year from now, you may be dead, and so you won't get to enjoy that good. And also because if you get it today, you, if it's a durable good, you get to keep it for a year, and then you'll still have it in a year from now. So would you, you'd prefer to have a home today than to get it in a year from now because you get to live in it throughout this entire year. So time preference is always positive. A good now is always preferred to an identical good in the future. And the degree of discounting of the future is the rate of time preference. It varies between individuals and depending on situations. That's an important concept to keep in mind that is a result of the fact that time is scarce. Because our time is scarce, we know that we might die. We know that life is uncertain. And we know that our time is limited. So we always prefer th good things to come to us earlier than later. And... All of that helps us understand the concept of economizing time. As I was explaining earlier, if, if we understand economic scarcity as the scarcity of time, 
then we can understand all all economizing as the economizing of time. Humans out there seek to increase the quantity and the subjective value of our time on Earth. Yes, we economize with physical goods and with economic goods in general, but that economization is, I believe, a manifestation and a consequence of the scarcity of time. And so if you understood all economizing as being the economizing of time, I believe economic decision-making and economic activity and economic action becomes uh, more makes more intellectual sense now of course all human beings economize but once you understand it as economizing of time i believe it makes it make more sense so how do we economize time well humans economize their time by we can spend our time in two broad ways the two categories of ways we spend our time alive Number one is leisure, and number two is labor. Leisure is anything that you do for its own sake, anything that you enjoy doing, anything you do because you like doing it. Labor, on the other hand, is anything that you do not because you enjoy doing it, but because you enjoy getting the fruits that result from doing it. So you plant trees because you like the fruits of those trees, not because you enjoy the process of planting the trees. If you did enjoy the process of planting the trees itself, it would be leisure, not something that you're doing for the output. Um, so if any, if you do something because you want the output from it, then you can think of it as labor. Now, humanity, all humans obviously would like to spend their time engaging in leisure. You'd like to be doing the things that you enjoy for their own sake. You'd like to be spending time with the people you love, being in a nice place, um, you know, on the beach, a nice mountain, um, eating nice food, enjoying and consuming all the things that you actually care for. But we can't just spend all of our time in leisure because you quickly realize if you did that, you would die. You know, you'd run out of resources eventually, and then you'd starve and die, and then you wouldn't have any more leisure. So what do you do? You need to spend some you need to take time out of leisure to work to provide for yourself so that you can have more leisure because otherwise you would die. And so you need to economize and you need to decide how much time you spend between labor and leisure. Reason also, even if it wasn't just about an issue of starving, reason also allows you to imagine ways in which you can improve the quality of your time and the quality of your leisure. So even if you did have enough resources to last you for your entire lifetime, you could still figure out a way in which you could work and therefore increase the amount of resources available to you and then increase the quantity and quality of leisure that you have available for you. And so you give up some leisure in order to attain better outputs and outcomes in the future. So we can think of the economic question as uh, how do we trade off present utility against longer survival and future utility? You give up present utility in that you get off your uh, nice chair on the beach. You get out of bed in the morning when you'd rather be uh, lying around in bed for another couple of hours. And you go and you do things that you don't want to do and that you would not ideally want to do. You go to your work, you listen to your boss tell you to do things. You go and you plant trees and you go and you do things. And again, you do those things not because you want to do those things. You do those things because you want the output that those things give you because the output that they give you provides you with more utility for the future that allows you to live a better life. It increases the quantity and the quality of time that you have on earth. 
And so this trade-off, this individual trade-off that you make every day between your present self and your future self, I believe is the most important trade that any individual does. You trade with the rest of the world five times a day, 10 times a day, 20 times a day. You know, you sell a few things, you buy a few things. That's it. But every day you make an infinite number of trades with yourself, with your future self. You buy things from your future self and you sell things to your future self every day, infinite number of times. Every time you decide to do something, it's going to affect you in the future. Anytime you decide to work, you're sowing seeds that are going to produce output that's going to make your future better. Anytime you decide to consume, to indulge yourself, to have fun, you're consuming things that you could have used otherwise for the future. And so this, I believe, is a good starting point for thinking about all of economizing. Labor is just the first, simplest, most obvious way of economizing. And it is something that we share with animals. Animals basically engage in labor. And an animal understands that they need to eat, so they go out and hunt. A lion realizes they're hungry, and so they get off their comfortable perch as the king of the jungle and needs to start running around running really fast to catch a deer or an antelope or a buffalo so that they can eat it and be full so there is labor involved there there's work animals are able to do that but we as human beings we engage in more sophisticated acts of economizing than just uh, labor labor is the first one but the next nine chapters of the book are going to be discussing nine different ways in which human beings economize. And I thought after long and long, after thinking long and hard about this, I structured this book around these nine chapters. So the first three chapters that we're just concluding right now give us the introduction to how to think about economics, how to think about economizing with introducing the concept of human action, value, and time. And then the next nine chapters introduce how humans economize. How is it that humans are able to um, engage in economizing acts? And the first five of these nine chapters, chapters four, five, six, seven, and eight, introduce individual economizing actions, things that you could do on your own if you were in an island on your own, that as an individual you're able to do. So the first of these is labor. We work. And that's something, as I said, animals can do it. Any individual on an island on their own, you can do it. You figure out you're hungry, you start running after the rabbits so that you can eat one of them. That's the simplest way in which we can carry out uh, labor activity. That's the simplest way in which we can economize. But then we as human beings, we develop more sophisticated ways of economizing. We develop the concept of property. You realize, maybe I should just take this little spot of land that's um, in a nice location and that's uh, on the top of a little hill, so isolated, so, so it allows me to be in a strategic position um, in case animals want to attack me. I'm going to make this mine. I'm going to make, I'm going to invest in it and make it my property. And that's an enormously important concept that human beings arrive at. And then we can discuss the concept of capital. And that's when you realize it's actually better for me to hunt with a spear. So instead of just spending all my day trying to hunt with my bare hands, I'm going to spend part of the day building a spear so that then I can use that spear to hunt and that'll increase my productivity. It's an enormously powerful way of economizing. Accumulating capital allows you to increase your productivity. This, then the fourth one is technology. We start improving the ways in which we uh, economize by finding newer ways of combining the resources that we have in order to produce economic goods. And then the eighth is power or energy. 
how we're able to dedicate more and more energy towards meeting our economic needs. And the economics of power are also enormously important. Having discussed these five ways in which individuals economize, we then move toward the economizing in a societal context, in the concept of us, within the context of a society. So socially, the, the first five we, disc- we, we economize individually, the next four are ways in which we economize as, as, as a society, as individuals together. So what do we do? First thing we do is we trade with one another. And that's a great way for us to increase our productivity when we trade. The more we trade, the more productive we become and the better outcomes we can have. We also develop the concept of money, which we're going to discuss in detail in chapter 10. And then we discuss in even more detail in chapters 13, 14, and 15. And then uh, when we have trade and we have money, that allows us to develop the market order. And that is the topic of chapter 11, which is an enormously important concept. And then finally, within the market order, we have the system of capitalism. And that is, I believe, the capstone of economizing for humanity, that we are able to engage in these five ways of individual economizing. And then when we trade, and then we develop a money order, a monetary system, that allows us to engage in a system called capitalism, which we're going to discuss in more detail. And capitalism really is what allows us to have human civilization. And I'm going to discuss this in a lot of detail in chapter 12. And then when that is concluded, we are going to go back to the concept of money, discuss money because I believe it is an enormously important part of economics. So chapter 13 will discuss time preference, which is the foundation of understanding money from the Austrian perspective. Chapter 14 We'll discuss um, banking and money. And then chapter 15, we'll discuss how money and banking go wrong under a fiat system, under inflation, and how the manipulation of money leads to many of the problems that we see around us today that most people think of as a natural part of a capitalist economy, but in fact are nothing but a natural part of a distorted fiat capitalist system. And uh, then the final three chapters will discuss the concept of civilization and defense and um, how human beings are able to uh, engage in defense and protection um, and, and the economics of these questions. So with this, I hope with the first three lectures, I've laid the groundwork for what to expect in the course and in the rest of the course. And so stick around for the rest of the lectures. Thank you very much.